Hey everybody, Jeremy Markovich here. Two quick notes before we get going. First, this podcast has a new home. It's now part of the North Carolina Rabbit Hole, which you can find at ncrabbithole.com. There you can check out previous episodes of Away Message. You can find any new episodes that we're putting out. And if you like this podcast, I think, no guarantees, but I think you will like my weekly newsletter. It is about weird North Carolina stuff. Comes out every Thursday. It is free if you want it to be. And you can sign up at ncrabbithole.com. Second, this episode was produced during my time at Our State Magazine. Now, I happen to think that most of it still holds up, but some of the promo codes and websites that I mention may no longer work. Okay, here's the show. So the paved road has ended, and I am now on this gravel road that is winding through the woods. This is a story that took me to one of the most remote spots in North Carolina. And I first heard about it after I did something that I usually never, ever do. After I click on an article online, I read the comments. I was doing research on North Carolina's borders for a story, and in the comments of an article on the Washington Post website, somebody posed this hypothetical question. Let's say you stood on one side of a state border and you shot and killed somebody on the other side. What would happen? Which state would prosecute you? Could you get away with it? The very next comment said, that is not a hypothetical question. That very thing happened in the year 1892 way up in the mountains on the state line between Tennessee and North Carolina. I immediately went to Google and I found everything I possibly could about this case. And it turns out not only did this guy, William Hall, murder somebody across the state border, his case went to the North Carolina Supreme Court and he won. Not once, but twice. The basic details of this case are fairly easy to find, but there are some really important pieces that are missing. For example, we know the who and the where and the when, but the why, that doesn't really seem to be explained at all. Plus, there's just not a lot of information out there about William Hall. Like, what was he like? Why would he do this? And after he got away with murder, what happened next? Where did he go? What did he do? Every time I found an answer, it just led to more questions. And one day I said, you know what? I'm just going to get in the car and go to the place where this happened. So I'm driving. Where am I going? And driving. (laughs) This is one of those roads where you wonder what exactly is at the end of it. Okay, here's the thing about me. When something doesn't add up, when I'm not getting the full story, when there's a piece of information that's just out of reach, I get obsessed. And so that is how I spent months trying to find any new clues about a murder case that was so unique, so improbable, and yet so forgotten. I had a lot of dead ends, but eventually I found what I was looking for. And so what you're about to hear today is a look inside a very long, very thorough, and very frustrating reporting process. One that took me back and forth across North Carolina, trying to find the real story behind one of the strangest murder cases in state history, maybe even in this country's history. And as I retraced the life of William Hall, trying to find out where he ended up, my path led me to a man who had never even heard of William Hall. 
his grandson. I never knew this William Hall, never knew he existed until you called. From Our State Magazine, this is Away Message, a podcast about what you find in hard-to-find places. I'm Jeremy Markovich. Let's start back at the beginning. Like any good detective, I wanted to visit the scene of the crime. So I drove all the way out to the westernmost town in the state, a little place called Murphy, which is about 500 miles away from the North Carolina coast. Once I got there, I topped off my gas tank because when I told some of the locals where I was going, they said, make sure you fill up because you might get lost out there. The place where the murder happened is in the forest along the border, deep in the Unicoi Mountains north of Murphy. But when I popped the location into Google Maps, it said the spot was only 20 miles away, but it would take an hour to drive there. And at first I thought, huh, wonder why that is. I have white knuckled it on this road more than any other road I think I can remember being on. It just runs up and over mountains and I could say you could barely drive to this place. It is, uh, it is crazy remote. I eventually run out of road and I get to a spot deep in the mountains near an empty campground on the banks of the Teleco River right on the North Carolina-Tennessee border. I think. I, mean, I can't tell just from being here where the where the border is exactly. It's not marked. And from there, I jump over a gate, start walking up a trail, which I hope will lead me to the exact place where the shooting happened. This is like really rugged country. But once I start taking a closer look at my map, I realize the trail doesn't actually go up to the top of the ridge where the border is. The ridge just gets really tall really quickly. Even if I could get there, it's just woods, and it's unlikely there'd be anything left a century later. So I drive back out, and I figure if I can't find the place where the killing happened, maybe I can find the killer himself. I swing open this big metal gate and start looking through a cemetery that's hidden back in the woods. In fact, I walk through several cemeteries, but I do not find William Hall's grave. If he's here, I wouldn't know it. On to plan C. Get you some coffee, and oh, there's plenty of snacks. Oh, thank you very much. Just help yourself. I pull into this senior center that's really close to Unaka, where all of this stuff took place. And the people there said, sure, we'll talk to you, but first, you just have to try this snack that tastes like dried peas. They don't taste like dried peas. It does. But I mean, they're, they're not like a pea. They're not it's peas, been, but they kind of have a pea. It's, they've been made out of something. Gotcha. And I learned two things about the people here. They are all really friendly, and they know nothing about this case. Mm. This happened 1892, 1893. Mm. So it's a little long. before my time. A little before everybody's <laughs> time, yeah. So. Just to recap, I've driven all the way out to the far western reaches of North Carolina, looking for clues about what seems like a pretty legendary murder case. A case you figured somebody would know something about. And all I have to show for it are some muddy shoes, a dirty car, and a belly full of fake dried peas. Back in Murphy, I drop in at the local historical museum to talk with a woman named Wanda Stalkup. Unaka 
was very remote, still sort of remote today. She's the kind of person who knows everything about everything around here. So if you look through the phone book up in that area, you're going to still see the same names that were there hundred some years ago. That's correct. And she's looked and looked, but even she doesn't have any real information on this case. And after I talk with her, I start to understand why. The first reason, this was just one murder among many, many murders out here. That area was so far out that people tended to take the law into their own hands. When someone told you something, their word meant something. And uh, if they told you that's going to get you per se, you better not sleep. You better sleep light <laughs> with your clothes on. <laughs> it was a violent area, which explains all the old guns on the wall at the museum. But there's probably a better reason why we can't find anything. Really old records in Murphy are hard to come by. For one thing, the courthouse there has burned down three times. For another, the local newspaper, the Cherokee Scout, only has consistent archives going back to the 1920s because... The publisher was so embarrassed by, you guessed it, a murder case, that he destroyed all of the back issues before that. So that's why it's so hard to find records about things that happened. And like any other history, a lot of it in this area is word of mouth, you know, that's been passed down through the generations. So I did not find what I was looking for in Murphy, because the place where I should have been looking is 300 miles away, on the second floor of the State Archives in Raleigh. When the case of William Hall went before the state Supreme Court, all of those records were boxed up, saved, and went to the state archives. When I went there, I stepped into this room, asked a clerk for two boxes of documents, and inside were the original files. I mean, the original files from the 1890s. Hundreds of pages of yellowed, handwritten case records, transcripts, indictments, opinions, everything. And from there, you get a clear picture of what happened at the scene, at the trial, and at the Supreme Court. And using all of that, we were able to recreate the crime and the trial and the appeals, everything from beginning to end. We got some actors to provide the voices here, and the detail and dialogue you're about to hear is all real stuff pulled directly from those files. So, here we go. William Hall was born in Cherokee County, North Carolina, back in 1870. And when he was in his early 20s, he was buddies with a guy named Andy Bryson, who lived nearby. Bryson was a big, beefy dude. He had a reputation for violence. Hall was skinny. In fact, his nickname was Little Bill. And they were more than just buddies. They made moonshine together. Until one day, the still goes missing. And there's this confrontation at Bryson's father's house. Bryson starts threatening Hall. If you take in the steel, I'm going to hurt you. And Hall gets out of there. But before he leaves, he turns to Bryson's dad and says, He can run over me now, but he can't do it long. Hall owns a Winchester rifle, and the next time he bumps into Bryson, he threatens to shoot him. And so Bryson goes out and gets himself a pistol, and then he uses it to threaten Hall. And so Hall takes it a step further. He goes to the Justice of the Peace and gets a warrant for Bryson's arrest for having a concealed weapon. The Justice gets this guy named John Dockery, and he deputizes him as a sheriff, and he says, go out and arrest Bryson. Now, Dockery just happens to be buddies with William Hall, and he asks him to come along. The hunt is on. July 11th, 1892. It's a hot, sunny day, and Hall and Dockery set out on foot. 
Hall with his rifle, Dockery with two pistols tucked into his belt. They go house to house, and the neighbors are like, what are you guys doing? We are hunting Andy Brasson. At one place, they kick the door in, and the owner's like, come on, man. I got a right to go in. I got a paper for Andy Bryson, and we're going to have him, and we ain't going to give him any advantage. But they come up empty, until later in the afternoon, they start walking along this trail that leads them up to a farm that is deep in the mountains. That's where Bryson's been known to help out. The trail winds up a ridge, and up at the top in the woods, the men hear somebody coming down the path. It's Bryson, about 50 yards away, with a jacket over one shoulder and a rifle over the other. So Dockery says... Let's hide. We will step behind a tree, and when he comes, we will halt him. And when Bryson is just a few feet away, they jump out. Hold up. We have a warrant for you. Will you give up to it? No, damn you, I will not. And then, according to Dockery, Bryson starts to lower his gun and points it toward Hall. Don't do that, Andrew. At that moment, Dockery says, Bryson squeezes the trigger. The bullet goes right through Hall's hat. Hall fires back. Hits Bryson in the chest, and as he staggers, he says what ends up being his final words. Oh, lordy. He stumbles and falls dead. Bryson is a big guy, and the men realize they can't move him, so they just leave him right there at the edge of the trail, go back down the way they came, and then they disappear. Some neighbors find the body pretty quickly, but it's two months before a sheriff finds Hall hiding out in a stable loft in Georgia. Dockery gives himself up pretty soon after that. And in May of 1893, 10 months after the murder, the trial begins. Now, Hall does not testify, but Dockery does. I stepped back towards the tree and said, don't do that. And Bryson fired and a gun by my side fired and my pistol snapped. But there are some holes in Dockery's story. At first, he says he heard a gunfire on his right, but then... When the gun fired to my left, he came, stepped to his gun, and dropped it. And there's another problem. Bryson's rifle was empty. And even if it was loaded, another witness testified that Bryson had tried to sell that gun a few days before, but it didn't work, which meant he couldn't possibly have fired it at Hall. And since his pistol was found in his jacket, he couldn't have pointed that one either. It became clear to everybody, including the jury, that this was not self-defense. This was an ambush. Hall and Dockery were both convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to hang. But their attorneys filed an appeal. And they said all of this stuff about the guns and the self-defense and the hole in the hat, it doesn't matter. There are only two things that matter in this case the location of the body, and the two sets of footprints on either side of that tree, just a few feet away. And the lawyers were right. Those details changed the whole case. So is the room upstairs that where they, that they hold court? Is that is that open today? Is that, is that... You want to see it? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go look at it. We are inside the North Carolina Supreme Court, this big, elegant, paneled room with paintings of justices all over the walls. That's Shepard. you got a mustache. and Yeah. It's right across the street from the old Capitol in Raleigh. You can see it out the window. But, and it was maybe... Oh, uh, hold on, what's that? That's 
was a clock. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what was that noise? It, it was a clock. It's a grandfather clock in here. Yeah. That uh, makes it nice and quaint. That is Supreme Court historian Danny Moody, who says the room where the Supreme Court meets today is not the same place where the court met in 1894, when it first heard the case of William Hall. There were a bunch of other differences. There were only five justices on the court back then. All of them were white men. And the fashion was different. Um, in 1894, they did not wear robes. Huh. Why is that? They thought it was very imperialistic. But in the front of the room, right below the spot where the justices sit, is this long row of books that contains a summary of each and every case that's ever been heard by the court. And the case is in um, one of these books here. Oh, let me see if I can... I, don't have, I didn't bring my glasses up here. Uh-huh. It takes a few minutes to find it. Only there was a search function on books. <laughs> right there. Right. That is State v. Hall. State, um, v. State v. William Hall and John Dockery. When that case first came in, one of the justices called it, quote, interesting. Because it wasn't about what happened so much as about where it happened. Remember that place I went to at the beginning of the episode? It has a name. State Ridge. The border between North Carolina and Tennessee runs right across the top. And when the lawyers went to the scene of the crime, they discovered something. When Bryson was shot and killed, he was standing in Tennessee. And even though Hall and Dockery were standing only a few feet away, it was clear from the footprints and also the border markings on the trees that Hall and Dockery were in North Carolina. And when it got to the court, it was completely novel. They'd never heard of such a thing. So technically, where did the crime take place? North Carolina or Tennessee? And they decided, I think very correctly, no crime had committed been committed in the state of North Carolina. Good lawyering. Yeah. <laughs> so on the last day of May in 1894, a year and a half after they'd been put in jail, the local prosecutor set Hall and Dockery free and then immediately rearrested them. Tennessee, it turns out, was more than happy to put the men on trial, and the sheriff and Murphy was going to send the men there to face the crime. But you know, the lawyers, they stepped in again with a new appeal, and they made this argument. And the man could not have been extradited to Tennessee because he'd never been to Tennessee. He wasn't over there. The U.S. Constitution says if you commit a crime and then flee from one state to another, the folks who catch you can send you back to that first state to face charges. But Hall and Dockery's lawyers really honed in on one word, flee. Technically, their clients hadn't fled from Tennessee because they weren't actually physically there when the murder happened. And they hadn't been there since. The lawyers said, you can't flee from a place if you've never been to that place. So for the second time in the same year, the case goes back to the state Supreme Court. And one of the justices, a guy named Walter Clark, says, if you buy that argument, that opens up a very big can of worms. Here are his exact words. Civilized man must recoil from the practical ruling that the territory adjacent to state boundaries is a no man's land. And Clark's like, if you rule in Hall's favor, what you're saying is, you could just stand at the border and do anything you want across the line. And as long as you never cross the line, there is no way that anyone can make you face the consequences for what is clearly against the law. But there's another justice named Alfonso Avery. The only question before us 
is whether a person can, in contemplation of law, flee from justice in the state of Tennessee when he has never been actually but only constructively within its territorial limits. And Avery says, forget the precedent that this would set. Forget what feels right or feels wrong. You have to look at the precise definition of the words. Flee, fled, fugitive. And technically, one who has never fled cannot be a fugitive. The vote is close, three to two, in favor of Hall and Dockery. The decision made national news. The New York Times said the case had no parallel. The Atlanta Constitution ran this headline, Where the law fails, Supreme Court judges split hairs and murderers go free. Defense attorneys across the country took notice. They started trying to use this case as a precedent to keep their clients from being sent across state lines to face justice. But legislators took notice too. And in the months and years that followed, North Carolina lawmakers and state legislatures across the country looked at this case and they closed up each and every one of those loopholes. So if you did the same thing today, trust me, you're going to jail for a long time. And just to bring things full circle, remember the stolen moonshine still that started all of this way back at the beginning? If you take the still, I'm going to hurt you. If you're wondering who actually stole it, William Hall or Andy Bryson, the answer is neither one. It turns out both men had taken the still from a neighbor, and that neighbor came and took it back one day, but forgot to tell anyone. So this whole thing was really just a big misunderstanding. And that, according to all the documents I was able to find, is where the story appears to end. Dockery, by one account, moves to Texas and lives a quiet life. But Hall sort of disappears. So where did he go? And why did he end up doing the one thing, the only thing, that could possibly put him back in jail for murder? Well, the answers lie in the basement of a woman who didn't even know William Hall existed until I called. That part of the story is coming up. This is Away Message. I'm Jeremy Markovich. After the state Supreme Court decided that it couldn't bring William Hall to justice for a murder that he obviously committed, everybody seemed to lose track of him. So I thought, how can I figure out where he went? Okay, I am going to try to make this as concise as possible. First thing, I plug Hall's name into an Ancestry website that brings up some old census records that shows after the murder, Hall got married and had some kids. I found the obituary for one of those kids, saw some more names, and from there, I tracked down a guy named Eddie Hall, who is William Hall's grandson. I got Eddie's phone number, called it, got no response. Tried email, Facebook, Twitter, nothing. And then I found out that Eddie plays the guitar and has a semi-regular gig at an ice cream shop down in Tampa. I called there and said, hey, you know, if you know this guy, tell him to give me a call. And a few days later, my phone rings. It's Eddie. What kind of music do you play? I'm a blues player with a country voice, so I do a little of both. Oh, nice. William Hall died about 20 years before Eddie was born. Eddie's father, William's son, was just six years old when William died. William's widow 
got widowed again, and then her third husband, that's the grandpa that Eddie remembers. My dad's uh, mom had gotten remarried to somebody named Beck. And I ask him, what can you tell me about your grandfather, William Hall? And he says, I've never heard of the guy, but maybe you should call my daughter, Donna. All right, do you have me? Yeah. Okay. So I get them both on the phone. I'm guessing your 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 father didn't really ever talk about his father that much. That's correct. I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's just sort of like this chapter of history that nobody, even in the family, there's like this gap between That's a true. generation. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, Grandma knew about it because she had written all these records. Yeah, Donna's grandma kept one of the most prolific and detailed family histories that I have ever heard of. And so I have books and books and books of genealogy where she traveled and documented everything she could um, on everybody like seven, eight generations back, including photographs, files, everything you could think of, stories. Wow. Sounds like she was just a really diligent, thorough writer. She really was, like, amazing. How closely had you looked at it before? Not. I I still haven't. Like, who's got time to read all these? So much. So I told Donna what I knew and what I was looking for, and she goes down in her basement, cracks open one of those books, and says, oh, wow, yeah, everything you're looking for, it's here. There's photographs. Birth certificates. Death certificates. Stories from relatives. Articles pertaining to people. And when you look at those records, you get a more complete picture of William Hall. After he was freed, he moved to North Georgia. That's where he met his wife, which, as it turns out, was his second wife. They get married there. He's a farmer on a piece of land along a river. But at some point, around 1904 or so, he makes a decision. A very bad decision. A decision that isn't explained in any record or family history or anything. The one thing that I cannot figure out, I think even through, through all of this, is why he would have gone back to Tennessee when that was the one state that he he couldn't go to without being arrested and put on trial. Well, I, he probably didn't realize it. I mean, once you're freed, you probably think you're free. I don't know. Yeah. But that is exactly what happens. Hall moves his family to Ducktown, Tennessee, a little copper mining town that's right near the spot where Tennessee, North Carolina, and Georgia meet. It's not all that far from Unaka. Hall becomes a barber there, and everything is going just fine, it seems, until one day in 1906 when this guy walks into his shop, a guy named Dave Bryson, who is the older brother of Andy Bryson. Dave sees William Hall, he goes and gets the sheriff, and 12 years after he was set free, Hall is arrested and goes on trial again for the murder of Andy Bryson. The second trial is much like the first. A lot of the same witnesses testify, the same points are made, except this time the verdict is different. Hall is found not guilty. The rumor is that a cousin stacked the jury, but in any event, Hall, once again, goes free. After that, he stays in Ducktown for a bit. His wife gives birth to a couple of kids, including a son, James, who grows up to have a son named Eddie. And Eddie 
then has a daughter named Donna. And it's those last two people who I'm talking to today. Everybody has their own little path. So as far as what he did, good or bad, doesn't faze me. But it's just amazing how, uh, how you found us. To me, that's just incredible. And because there's this disconnect with the past, because everything happened 100 some years ago, and because most of his story is found in legal documents, it is easy to forget that William Hall was a real person. There are a few glimpses of him contained in Donna's books. His family called him Billy. His uncle had to sell part of his farm to pay for his lawyer. He had several children who died as infants, including one who passed away while Hall was in jail in Tennessee. And he had health problems, asthma and Bright's disease. He had haunting eyes, big hands. He was clean-shaven and rail-thin. My grandmother wrote that he almost starved to death when he was in prison. I don't know which time, but um, you can tell in the pictures that he's very thin. Like, he's skinny. And that's when Donna realizes that her dad has never seen a picture of his actual grandfather. Let's see. Well... There. Can you tell what that is, Dad? Actually, he favors my brother, my oldest brother. My oldest brother's name was named James William Hall. And so he kind of looks like, like James William Hall. Yes. Skinny, the shape of the head, just in right. general. Just a general appearance. Yeah. William Hall had a short life. He moved back to Georgia and died in 1914, just seven years after he was acquitted of murder for the final time. And his story mostly faded away until now. What's going through your mind as sort of you're seeing this stuff for the first time about your great-grandfather? What went through my mind is that, holy cow, I out of 12 or 14 books, I went straight to the right book, to the right page. And that, to me, is not coincidence. That's what went through my mind. Like, I didn't, I didn't have to shuffle very long. It just, it was so incredible that I even found the right book and the right page to find the right guy immediately. So, um, maybe he's on the other side wanting to be hurt. I had one more thing to do. I drove down into Georgia, into a little town called Elijay. A few miles east of there, in the hills past the river, up off the main road is an old church cemetery tucked back in the woods. I get out of the car and I walk around for a while until I come across an old rectangular gravestone, weathered and darkened with time. It's almost impossible to read, but the words are still legible, just barely. It's easy to overlook, hard to see. It's the last place where William Hall could hide. I was a young boy, I hung out in a park, had a good friend, played the blues harp. I love that sound, so I learned to play. Away Messages, written and edited by me, Jeremy Markovich, and produced by me and James Michkowski. Our digital manager is Kimberly Simpson, and our editor-in-chief is Elizabeth Hudson. Our closing song is Thinking Famous by Eddie Hall. 
Additional music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosefear. A lot of people helped make this show possible, including Patrick Ball, Stanton Nash, and James Michkowski. They provided the voices we used in our reenactments. Also, thanks to former Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr for his insight. And this story is not at all possible without the help of a lot of folks at historical societies in North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee, including Marion Presswood, Joe Stakely, Wanda Stalkup, and Billy Ray Palmer. A very short version of this story appeared in the May issue of Our State magazine as part of a series of stories I wrote about North Carolina's borders. If you love geography even half as much as I do, you should pick up a copy and check it out. This podcast is a production of Our State Magazine, an employee-owned company that's been celebrating North Carolina for 85 years. If you're not a subscriber, use the promo code AWAY and get $5 off a year's subscription for you or for a gift. It's our thank you for listening to the show. And one more thing. That grandfather clock at the North Carolina Supreme Court, it really belongs to the lower court of appeals. But the Supreme Court won't give it back. Supreme Court said no way, and there's always been a dispute about that clock as to where it belongs, but who's going to overrule the Supreme Court? <laughs> it's, not, it's not how it works. No, no. no they're no. the Supreme Court. They're Co- not the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals cannot overrule the Supreme Court. Yeah, uh, not even when it comes to this grandfather clock. Not over, over the clock, no. Oh. We are back out on the road, working on the next episode of Away Message, and here's a clue. We're going in search of something that's buried deep under the ground. Something nuclear. We'll talk to you again real soon. It's in my blood and I think I'll play.